0: Hello, dear listeners. This is Christopher Brick, and welcome back to Intervals, a public humanities podcasting initiative of the Organization of American Historians. And it's a huge honor to also welcome back Hasia Diner, the Paul and Sylvia Steinberg Professor of American Jewish History at New York University, for a discussion about the lecture she contributed to this season, which you can listen to as Episode 1, Immigrant Politics in America, Tying the World Together. As always, Carrie Ann Yakota joins me for the questioning as well. Please enjoy. Hasia Diner, welcome to the podcast.
1: It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: It's a special day for us to have Professor Hasia Diner here, the Paul and Sylvia Steinberg Professor of American Jewish History at New York University. Thank you for the talk, Hasia. Carrie Ann Welcome to you as well. Thank My you. My co-pilot in this wonderful endeavor, joining us from the University of Colorado at Denver.
2: Well, Hasia, I am a longtime fan of your work, as you know, and I was hoping that you could, to start us off, share with the listeners a brief intellectual autobiography of what brought you to this particular topic, um, or just what inspired you to do the things that you do?
1: Okay, I mean, that's a, a certainly a uh, pretty broad question and uh, I tend to be less interested in talking about myself and more about the ideas, but I would just say that uh, uh, certainly the whole question of immigration as a uh, both a factor in uh, the making of American uh, history and the experience of ordinary people who were Im- who immigrated, the reasons they made their choices, when they made their choices, how, and so on, was first very personal. In that, I was the child of immigrants, and so much of what I read in um, the historic record, uh, in the primary sources, regardless of who, who we're talking about, you know, which immigrant population, when. Okay, there's so much that resonates with me, and I can feel it viscerally. You know, I could be reading about uh, uh, Chinese immigrants in California in the uh, uh, 1860s, or I could be reading about Irish in the same period, or Pakistanis in the contemporary period. And so many of the uh, really on-the-ground, granular details of uh, children who knew English better than their parents, children who could navigate American society actually had to explain to the parents what was going on uh the confusion the uh opportunities uh that the uh uh, uh immigrants themselves uh, recognized that they had uh, the fact that they understood they had made they had had some choice and uh i think it's one of the reasons this is now not me personally but the ac- academic where the history of immigration really has a very different uh, uh, um, underlying framework than, for example, the history of slavery. Because there we have a, an enormous population that had no choice, that didn't calculate, I should go first and, you know, mom and dad should come later. It was uh, utterly compelled. And uh, Could
0: I pick up on that for a sure. second? You made this point that, that um, for immigrants who came to the United States voluntarily. There is some degree of power in that choice-making. There is some degree of volition, um, certainly much more than we would say for enslaved people who were transported here uh, from Africa.
1: Right, the uh, reality has always been that, for one thing, in any population, not everybody came to the United States. I mean, so when we see large immigrations, for example, about a quarter of the population of Ireland comes to the United States, but that means that three quarters didn't. And, uh, and a certain percentage, and I can't, I don't have those figures at my command, went to Britain instead. A certain percentage went to Australia. Okay. A certain percentage stayed home. Okay. So, uh, and it's endlessly fascinating as scholars to try to figure out who made which decision. Okay. Uh, you know, even when we look at, uh, comp- really acute refugee situations, for example, like Southeast Asians, uh, in the, uh, after the, uh, uh, Vietnam War, uh, some went to Europe, you know, and some went to Canada and within the United States, even though it was a very, um, organized uh, migration in that American social service agencies and the U S government quote, settled people. Uh, as soon as they had the choice, they left those places that they had been settled. They were sent to Idaho and Wyoming and then they end up in uh, little Saigon in um, orange County or in uh, Arlington, Virginia. So, uh, so we have that. We also know that immigrate my, these migrations are age specific. Okay, old people don't migrate. Okay, rich people don't migrate. Okay, other than when you have, let's say, example, something like the Cuban Revolution. Okay, the well off left. Okay, uh, but that again means that most people didn't go. Uh, and when the means were available, more come. But that's the kind of context of, uh, of choice. And somebody once compared it to going to a fast food restaurant. Here's where I might, don't want to be flip, but you know, you go in and you want to order beef Wellington. Well, it's not on the menu and either is uh, a Chateau Briand. You have a choice of a burger with or without uh, ketchup. You have a choice, you know, there's a limited choice, but there's still choice. You're not going in there. There's not only potatoes on the menu and it's, and you know, in a way I think there's a kind of uh very modern, maybe American idea that choice is limit is limitless. Well, we know no choice is limitless. More than half of the emigration from um, Southern Italy went to South America. And so, uh, America U S was certainly a very attractive destination, but not for, you know, But the, 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 a larger percentage goes to South America, to Argentina and Brazil and uh, Chile. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, So, yeah, so it's not just the U.S. as this uh, kind of beacon. And there are differences between immigration. Uh, I hope I haven't interrupted you. Uh, uh, But, uh, I mean, we could talk about some differences between Mm -hmm. somebody choosing Argentina versus the United States. There were differences in terms of the kinds of migrations. Uh, uh, But... It's still it was a it was a choice, and people went. You know, an uncle is already living in Columbus, Ohio, so that's where you go. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not because oh my god, all my life I've dreamt of Columbus, Ohio. Uh, so uh, uh, a whole range of factors pushed people to make the kinds of decisions they did.
2: I want to um, ask about the organization of research questions and how we define our subject matter. So as you know, this season, Chris and I are focusing on global history. um, And we're asking um, our guests to talk about how global perspectives influence their work. And for you, I mean, your work in immigration history, one could say that by definition, immigration history, and I would also add ethnic studies um, is a global or transnational story by, you know, by the way that it's constructed. But it hasn't always, that hasn't always been the focus of scholars that are working in these fields, right? So for the first uh, part of when ethnic studies was developed, we really tried to focus on the domestic story um, because there was so much blurring of lines between what is Asian history, what is Asian American history, for instance. So the first generation of Asian Americanists were saying, no, there's a story about that. We wanna tell the story of Asians in America. And what struck me about your Talk and about your work in general, you're talking about several groups, right? So in, in some senses we have different ethnic studies departments. At some universities it's it's divided. AFM, Asian M, Latinx, you know, different groups, Native American studies. Your talk is interesting because you keep, you, you, you will tell us these lists of the different people. And I, I think from your opening statement, you're talking about similarities across time, across um, different groups. And I think that's interesting as well. Um, Also your other comments about the different places, for instance, uh, uh, Italian immigrants go, we could do a diasporic study of the Italian diaspora, where did they go, or the Chinese diaspora. So there's just so many ways to organize Um, these studies. So I thought it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on these larger questions of how we historians define our research subjects.
1: Right. So I think for one thing, a lot of what we call ethnic studies, particularly when they're enshrined in universities or in uh, publishers' catalogs or Library of Congress call numbers or so on, is very political. And it's political uh, for all sorts of reasons, but the one I want to emphasize, uh, at least initially, is that the uh, individuals who are the creators of these fields, who were the uh, sort of spark plugs that got them going, had a political, and it's this is not bad, but it had a political agenda, which is essentially my group, okay, and Many of these people were themselves the products of Asian American communities, or, you know, which is, I think, as a word, really problematic. Uh, but uh, I know Italian communities or this community. My group has a history that's getting lost. My group has a history that's getting subsumed. My group has a history that's being erased. My group has suffered. Okay. And therefore, the time has come, the political moment has come to enshrine this, to uh, systematize this in something called, okay, Latinx studies, okay, or this kind of study. So that kind of study it's certainly true of Jewish studies, and um, it has implications uh, for the way knowledge is conveyed and for the uh, way in which we understand uh, various, uh, you know, understand history. Uh, but it is grew out of, I think, the political imperatives behind the creation of these fields as fields. And um, while I have been a beneficiary of it, I mean, I, I have a title chair in a Jewish studies department. Um, so I, I, I'm not going to, as they say, bite the hand that feeds me. But I'm not sure that intellectually, that's the best way to go. And because it tends to silo perspectives. And it tends to keep people, scholars, uh, and the publics to whom we speak thinking these phenomena were utterly unique to this group, okay, uh, or that group, and that the history of this group is not uh, connected to the histories of other groups. And, um, you know, I read a fascinating study about Punjabi immigrants to uh, California. Okay. And it was a very male migration. Okay. Many of the uh, Punjabis indeed had wives who they had left back home, but they come to Southern California and they tended to marry Mexican women, Mexican American women, or enter into long term loving relationships with them. But therefore, the history of Punjabis in California is as much a history of Mexicans in California. As it is a global history of uh, Punjabis uh, uh, who uh, came essentially until 19, you know, as British subjects. Uh, So, uh, but if you're only looking at uh, one group, you don't see those uh, other stories which are equally formative in the experience you want to uh, uh, make sense of.
2: Mm-hmm. No, yeah, no, I agree. I think that the, some of the most interesting new works coming out on inter ethnic relations. And I, I think that's your point. I mean, but more than 10 years ago, I, I, talking to Jack Chen at NYU about his work on um, Chinese um, bachelors um, having relationships with um, Irish women in New York City um, long before the Civil War right so I, I think that historians recognize that also due to the fact that different ethnic minority communities have um, suffered in similar ways um, from structural racism in the United States, for instance, that they're, they find themselves, because of redlining, they find themselves in the same uh, neighborhoods, they're connecting, they're integrating, they're fighting some of the same issues. And, and I, I think that's also what you're saying. And
1: Yes, and so that these, if we want to understand ethnicity or immigration, we can't just look at this group and then this group, and then this group. Uh, But rather it's these uh, sort of the porousness of uh, the society in, in which they were functioning. And um, they encountered each other in multiple places and they could encounter each other and hate each other. They could encounter each other and like, you know, and, and find positive uh, human connect, make you positive human connections. But either way, their history is shaped now by all these other people around whom they're living. And to think of it as purely an Irish study It just uh, limits the uh, richness, actually, for 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 the stories we uh, we want to tell.
0: It's a social reality that when you throw a bunch of different kinds of people together, intermarriage, Mm -hmm. right, becomes one of the ways that intermingling occurs. You both raised this issue of intermarriage, Mm -hmm. which has what what kinds of scholarship are we seeing out there on that topic up in this field that you work in, immigration history?
1: It's a really understudied uh, issue. And um, uh, there's a lot of raw data on it. And certainly somebody who wants to study it really can. It's not... um, the uh, primary material is not hidden at all, um, but um, it has not been a big, particularly lo- uh, robust topic. And um, I think, again, it maybe takes us back to the sort of political nature of what we're doing, because by talking about intermarriage, between Italians and Irish or between, uh, and again, I use marriage in a, uh, uh, not necessarily in a legal sense, but although obviously that's very important, uh, but uh, so the Punjabis, the Mexicans, or there's a great book called Bengali Harlem about Bengali, uh, uh, again, man. And uh, they're um, in a sense, Sort of entering into African American communities, and again, some uh, you know marriage is taking place, uh, and um, the uh, and and uh, certainly in the in the field of uh, of Jewish history, uh, you know, I wrote a book on Jewish peddlers, and these are these men who travel all over the country uh, and actually all over the world selling stuff, and you know they sell on Native American uh, reservations. They often got the. Uh, uh, right you know from the uh, government to the reservations and they made, they've developed long-term relationships with Native American women and um, but I th- the political part of it is is that people historians have pretty much wanted to write these histories about a group, their group and by looking at these um, what, let's call it hemorrhaging <laughs> uh, uh, looking they are losing the coherence of what they wanted to study is we were solid. We stuck together. We worked together. We saw, and it's that we, 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 we. And once you start looking at intermarriage, it becomes like, who is we? And, uh, you know, whose story are you telling? One of the hats I wear is that I edit a series in American Jewish history at NYU press. And I have been in, just constantly frustrated by the fact that these books, which tell us a great deal about American history, never get advertised in the NYU press bulletin or whatever we call it. The, the you know, the, those catalog catalogs as American history, they get, uh, ca- they get, uh, cataloged as, or they're in the session on Jewish studies. And so, um, one of the books uh, was on uh, Jewish chaplains during World War One. the first time uh, uh, rabbis got to be chaplains, and uh, and she writes much of it is about their work with the Catholic and the Protestant uh, chaplains. They had they were actually all interchangeable, particular you know that they they worked very closely with each other and conflict cooperation. Blah, blah. But this is about World War One and the American Army religion, and I could not get them to put it in the catalog under U.S history. and it, it came out at the centennial of World War One that no, it's Jewish studies. And so now this is made I, ha- I have great respect for the people at the press. they do great stuff, but I thought it was very revealing that they could not, conceptualized that it was a way of understanding how the U.S. Army or Congress and the U.S. Army felt the need for chaplains, recognized uh, that uh, the man that that, uh, that there was this little religious group, I mean, three percent of the population, but they still got to have chaplains, you know, uh, it says something about uh, what Americans were thinking at the time, the, the government. And um, at a time when there was very little quote interreligious cooperation, you know, the Jewish chaplain would, you know, minister to the Catholic men when the need arose and vice versa. And, uh and they had to share space and they had to find out a way to cooperate with each other. Okay. And so is that just Jewish studies? I mean, I think it's really a very big statement and we're not asking for it. I wasn't asking for anything more than placement in a catalog mm-hmm. for that yeah. book.
2: Well, I, I think that's, An important issue that you're raising, but I also think that it reflects the challenges of scholars who are working under the auspices of, say, ethnic studies or the various um, subgroups within ethnic studies, the umbrella, um, because that is about global history. It is about the core of American history. But when you label it as something separate, then it seems as if they're working in their own world and that's not true at all. They're informing U.S. history. They're, like I said, even beyond that global history. But I also think in a way um, they're doing double work, right? Because ethnic studies departments play an important role for the students, um, the political and the activism role that they've played or the links, the historic links to the communities that stem from the civil rights era. So they're kind of doing both things.
1: Right, I mean, I and I have I, I I heartily support the second, but I'm really thinking about this in terms of the uh, the first of you know, the intellectual part. Right, I mean, let me give you another example because again, I think it implies what we read. Mm-hmm. What hmm. You and I, you know what it is, uh, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you say, OK, I'm going to read a new book. Uh, where do we go to read? And so um, a book came out, a uh, very small press, but I thought it was an amazing book. It was called The First to Cry Down the Injustice. And it was a study of four um, Jewish communities on the, on the West Coast, uh, Portland, Seattle, San Francisco and Los Angeles, and how the Jews in those four places dealt with the uh, relocation of the Japanese. Their neighbors, in some Mm -hmm. cases, in LA, they shared. Absolutely. And um, it was, you know, the book was great. A story named Ellen Eisenberg. I've been such an advocate for this book. And I had conversations with any of my, any number of my colleagues. In Asia, you know, who from through from the Immigra- immigration ethnic history society who do Asian American history, and they never heard of it. Why? Because the book is advertised as Jewish studies, but yet, how important, you know, like we 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 are, you know, as a field, with considered rightly that this uh, issue of the uh, internment of the Japanese is really an incredibly important chapter in American history. Okay, and here is a study of how a population, you know, along the Pacific coast, which lived near or had contact with uh, Japanese uh, Americans, how they responded, why they responded the way they did. Right. And in some places they said, sure, the Japanese should be interned. And in other places, they said, no, this is wrong. And mm-hmm. how did that happen? And none of these communities... Again, the four uh, Jewish communities—none of them were unified. In some places, there were people who said yes, they should; others said no, they shouldn't. Uh, but I think that that's a really important addition Absolutely. to the scholarship on the internment to the Japanese. But nobody had heard of it, right. and it's—it's it's marketing, let's say, was in a uh, in a ghetto. In a right. silo.
2: Right. No, I, and- I agree. I agree. I, I mean, I did my master's thesis on the African-American community's relationship with the Japanese-American community in the pre and post internment period. And, of course, they were living, like I said, in, in the same neighborhoods because of redlining. And they were friends. They were, the the African-American community said if they could do that to them, they could easily do it to us. And they really, the African-American newspapers came out against internment. They were the only, you know, press that did at that time. So I, I, I hear what you're saying, that these stories, I think, need to be amplified,
1: yeah um or if i could give again one more example and it had, takes us a little bit to the transnational which is i think what we were supposed to be talking about but which is okay um so um and i obviously will not name names but a speaker uh who works on uh mexican immigration to the united states in particular the Bracero program uh made the comment in in her talk that The uh, these Mexican men who came to work in the United States, unlike uh, previous immigrants, sent money back home, and invested in their old communities, their home communities. And I thought, where in the world did she get, unlike? Okay. Uh, where? And I asked her, she said, oh, well, everybody knows that. Well, obviously she had not read any of this enormous body of scholarship about Swedes, Germans, Irish, uh, pouring um, vast amounts. Of, in fact, one of the reasons they come to America is so they can support their families back home. And um, I think in my talk before, I mentioned that a uh, study done in Ireland in the 1870s, said that a third of all money that circulates in Ireland comes from servant girls in the United States.
0: This question about remittances and conveying support systems back to the homeland, back to the the, the family there, the kinship network there and such, um, was not just sort of an individual choice, but was actually state policy of a sort. I mean, it was it was adopted as an economic development. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, It
1: was true in Italy. The Italian government was so happy to uh, support emigrants, emigrants, because they knew this money was going to come back uh, to the state and it was going to relieve the state of supporting the poor.
0: Yeah. And what I love about that, that, that that example is that it does. Uh, Underscore one of these other points you make in the talk about the influence that these communities in diaspora continued to have uh, In the places they had left, you know, and some of them actually end up going back Many of them end up returning at a certain point or another It wasn't necessarily everyone's intention to stay forever or to settle permanently but um, I hadn't quite put together until I listened to your talk that There's a lot of real political work Mm -hmm. there, the shaping of the politics in the homeland um, that just continues to, you know, we we don't typically study the impact that that immigrant communities in the United States have Mm -hmm. on other spaces. But that's as significant a part of Mm -hmm. the story as the impact they had on this space.
1: Absolutely. And uh, which I think is obviously a great topic and we're happy for us to talk about more, but I had brought up that subject, the, the, uh, the remittance story partly or only because, uh, because of, again, this fear, my, my concern about the silo that here was somebody who wrote a dissertation on Mexican, uh, immigrants, to the United States. you know, men in the Bracero program, uh, and uh, she could conclude that uh, only Mexicans did that. That means that when she was being guided in her dissertation research, I presume by others in that same field, nobody said, by the way, you know, you might want to think about how, now it might be very, it might have been different because of the physical proximity in terms of bringing the money, you know, there, there are ways in which it might have been done differently, but that doesn't mean they were the only ones who did it. And that's why I kind of thinking back, uh, you know, to the initial question here, why I really, despite again, you know having this blessing of a chair in Jewish studies, um, in Jewish history, why it's just so important to think beyond the, to think and to read and to, uh, um, acquire, uh, insight beyond, uh, your own, um, little world because it's, it's a big world out there. And ours well, um, lived yeah. in a big world
0: and, as you say, and listening to you talk, is yeah. You 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 make the point about American Jewish history. I mean, that's in your title, but clearly your work's been empowered by all these other historiographies and all these other fields that have enabled you to you know draw these comparisons and comparisons and bring in these examples and and make connections between all of these communities that exist in diaspora.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been really important to me. I can't explain necessarily why I felt that was uh, you know, that pushed me, but um, I, it just always seemed to me that to do my work well as an American Jewish historian, I had to know these other stories uh, from both the point of view of American religion as well as the point of view of ethnicity. And you know it's a lot of work, and it's. Uh, but to me, it made for a lot of reading. For a lot of reading, and um, it made it to me more interesting than just you know kind of re, uh, uh, spinning in, in in the same uh, um, uh, kind of orbit, and or I guess probably a mixed metaphor, but <laughs> just playing over the same ground. And I don't fault people who don't do that. But on the other hand, I think they have to keep their claims small about, uh, you know, only and uniquely and particularly until, you know, you can't say that.
2: Right. One thing I thought um, I'd like to ask you to talk a bit about was the importance of generational change in not only, you know, your, Specific topic, but just when anyone's studying any immigrant group, um, how that plays a part, for instance, in the importance of or the the waning importance of immigrant press as um, different generate as future generations become more um, assimilated into American culture, if you want to use that term in quotes, um, and it, how generations. Um, affect the community at large or how people through different generations still um, maintain an ethnic identity.
1: Uh, Okay, great. So um, I think that uh, the institutions uh, built, created, sustained by the immigrant generation, by definition had to change when they departed the scene. You know, they th- those institutions served their purposes. Um, they didn't necessarily say, "Oh, we know this is going to end," uh, but uh, it fulfilled the uh, the the need uh, that they had, and so uh, their children didn't need articles. Uh, telling them, uh, you know, what's baseball, you know, or, uh, uh, um, why they should learn English or, uh, that. I mean, they had access to that information galore. And uh, they they wanted to go to a play. They uh, didn't need to go to a play in Italian or Yiddish or whatever. They could go to, you know, anything, you know, the, the, anything in the English language was open to them. And so I think what's interesting, and it's obviously an amazing question, that the institutions of those communities, which kind of survived, survived because they responded to change. And they retooled themselves and they uh, outfitted themselves to address different, the next generation and the next one and so on. And um, so I'm going to offer just one example. Uh, so the largest circulating Yiddish newspaper in the United States was something called the Jewish Daily Forward, or the Forwards. Which uh, was somebody said it was the largest circulating uh, foreign language newspaper in New York in 1916. It was Yiddish. It was socialist. Uh, it had, by the way, reporters all over the world. It had. It, it hired uh, people in. Berlin, Warsaw, uh, Moscow, you know, Kiev, and so on, to send reports. So it was a global paper, but it was it was in the Yiddish language. And uh, by the 1920s, just, just as one statistic, in 1930, partly because the end of uh, mass immigration, a majority of American Jews were American-born. Just bare 50% were American-born, but that's still very important. So a few years earlier, the paper starts putting in an English page, And starts kind of not. It didn't ever lose its socialist moorings, but it began to have other stuff. You know, and um, it 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 stumbled along. Uh, It got a kind of boost in the uh, fifties when Holocaust survivors came to the United States. And they didn't know English yet, so they kind of upped the uh, so you know the dying pers- uh, subscription, and indeed the forward gave free copies to um, uh, internees in the displaced persons camps. So if you were in a DP camp in, uh, in Germany, you could get the Jewish Daily Forward from New York. Uh, the assumption that if you then came to New York, you'd subscribe to it, uh, With you know, without that being said. But there's, again, a great transnational story. But look, they still could, the children of the Holocaust survivors become English speakers. They don't need this. So right. rather than die, it became an English pop- publication, which had a weekly Yiddish publication for those who wanted it. And since it coincided, sided with the um, Russian Jewish immigration in the 1980s it had a Russian weekly
2: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. and but the the English paper was not, no longer daily it was weekly and now it's basically online. And now it's it's no longer socialist. But the socialist part is long gone. But the fact is, it still exists.
2: Right. So things change and they uh, I think I had mentioned to you when we were chatting earlier about how Japanese American newspapers change and they turn into a bilingual uh, format. So it can continue, but change with the changes in the, the community. But you know, just to follow up before we, we move on, I just wanted to, um, we started this conversation talking about similarities between immigrant groups and shared experiences across different um, uh, peoples. But I, I wanted to just talk and touch a bit about uh, on differences. And you do mention that in the um, lecture, I thought an important caveat was you were saying that um, Asians in America, because of their, um, the the fact that they are barred from citizenship, it changes the um, power that they have here, and it changes their choices or it, it limits their choices. And I think that's important. And I wanted to link that up with some of the things we've been talking about recently in this conversation, which is um, generational change. So for those groups that are physically racialized, right, it doesn't matter if they're third generation or fourth generation born in America, the fact that they are othered and they continue to be, uh, identified as different or um, discriminated against, it changes their experience. So in that sense, it is a very different experience from Italian immigrants and German immigrants. And if you could talk a bit about um, where Jewish immigrants or their their offspring, how they fit into this whole milieu, that would be really interesting.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I should say that uh, there is a, um, a debate of sorts that rages among American Jewish historians about this issue of whiteness and um, which veers on the question of the nature and level of anti-Semitism in the United States. Um, I happen to take the position that Jews were since you began this with the legal as formative then I will do that as well, because I do, uh, that they were never not white. And that, you know, in 1790, with the passage of the Naturalization Act, uh, which limited naturalization to free white people of good character, nobody ever, they, they were never disbarred from citizenship, from voting, from jury service, and so on. Where they suffered disabilities in the early republic, it was because of religion. Because, for example, Pennsylvania to take office, and Maryland also, you had to swear on a King James Bible. Okay, Well, Catholics couldn't do that either, right? And nonbelievers couldn't do it, and Quakers couldn't do it. Uh, And so it wasn't that Jews were specifically uh, uh limited you know uh barred from holding public office but it was that king it was that pesky king james bible uh but in the ni- 1820s when that gets uh eliminated in most states uh, and then certainly with the uh, uh 14th amendment it wasn't about their racial type okay uh but it was they were white and there's never a time where they weren't free to enter contracts, to press their uh, case in, in, in their claims in courts, to travel wherever they wanted and not be asked for identification papers uh, to prove who they were and that they had the right to be there. And yeah, I mean, they, uh, there were no institutions created by the state for them. Okay, uh, whether it's schools or or whatever. And um, and they're never even excluded by name in immigration restriction. So uh whereas Asians, I mean, the creation of the Asian Pacific barred zone in 1917 couldn't have been clearer. I mean, it's, they're not punching, they're not trying to gild the lily, as it were. Congress said what it really believed. They, they were honest. Okay. Um Jews were never mentioned in the law, and while the places they came from got in the nineteen twenty, in the twenty one and twenty four low quotas, but they weren't any more severely impacted than non Jews from the exact same places. So there are lots of Polish Christians who want to come to the United States. Poland gets a low quota. Okay, Jews and, and, and Catholics or Jews and whatever other religious communities people came from suffered from that same national quota. Um, and uh, so I really think that the importance of their whiteness meant they had access to political uh, um, to entering into the political arena, as it were, uh, as they felt fit. Okay, You know, they certainly there were times uh, it took them a while to feel um, that their religion would not be held against them. But they were certainly qualified to do that. And um, and they could press the U.S. government. You know, in the 1840s, there was a uh, um, a libel. uh, There was there was a. um, a crisis involving the Jews of Damascus and American Jewish notables go to the president and to secretary of state and say, can you intervene on our behalf on the behalf of the Jewish people? They say, sure, we'll do that. Okay. And in 1858, it was against uh, the, uh, uh, the pat, the Vatican, which had kidnapped the little Jewish boy and the, they go to the president and they say, look, at, can you represent us? And they get Theodore Roosevelt to, um, Threaten uh, Russia. will take you off most favorable nation status for trade if you don't cease persecution of the Jews. And so they have access to power. It may not be the same access that I don't know Henry Cabot Lodge had or some you know someone else who could trace their lineage to the Mayflower. Uh, but that was as much their own sense of anxiety. But they could come into the White House and meet with, sit down with roosevelt or with taft or with cleveland and press their case and um i think that makes them white okay and uh which (laughs) and you know it doesn't mean that there wasn't uh you know most of the discrimination that in fact existed existed in private institutions you know harvard yale princeton uh, but not the University of Massachusetts or the University of Connecticut. That is, state-run institutions tended to be uh, pretty much non-discriminatory, and uh, you know, private hotels, private uh, clubs, uh, uh, private some private employers, okay, law have fancy law firms. Uh, okay, but we're talking about private institutions. But to me, whiteness came from the state. What, what's important. Uh, I'll put it this way: I think the important as- aspects of whiteness were what the state defined, and I really think the uh, law, civic, legal status, uh, uh, state-based policies have to come first. And I think the example, by the way, of um, uh, you know Chinese, Japanese, uh, 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 other uh, uh, groups from uh, from Asia. W- that their, that their um, persecution came first from the state. You know, uh, I, I, that the state was the agent, not so Jews.
0: It's such a, a trope, a, uh, a cliche of our political culture of the, in the United States, that the, the United States is a nation of immigrants, mm-hmm. right? Now, you're a historian of immigration. When you hear that or see that, What's your response from the historical side?
1: From a personal point of view, I could not be happier that my parents came to the United States. And uh, or that they left Ukraine <laughs> uh, because had they not, you know, just they would have probably been slaughtered in the Holocaust. You know, I mean, so it is really on a personal level a kind of miraculous um, story. You know, and that uh, uh, I once asked my father, I said, when well, I was very young, I said, "Do you have any relatives in, in Europe?" He said, "Don't ever ask me that again." no, I and I now have done some read a little bit uh, about the town where he le- that he was from and what you know essentially all the Jews were killed in that town I mean a hundred percent of them okay so uh, he would have been would have been one you know so but a, a, on a historical level it's a little cringing uh, because other nations uh, were shaped by immigrants Argentina, Canada, Australia, etc. And uh, uh, that I know, again, that people made all sorts of choices about where to go. And it wasn't because of the nation, uh, but rather where they understood they had opportunity and where they had contacts. The fact that most Jewish immigrants came to the United States, I mean, a whopping number, uh, 85 to 90% tells us something about the range of opportunities that they had um, and uh, less about the uh, vaunted nation of immigrants. But yet I think it's a really important image to keep holding up. And because I think we, it is still imperative that uh, the United States admit immigrants that it loosen up its, uh, uh, kind of, uh, uh, the, the restrictions, the draconian policies, which keep families apart, and which, uh, inhibit individuals from, uh, having uh, the kind of opportunities that, that I did. And, um, I think that, um, the more Americans actually take seriously, cause it's just rhetoric now. I think the more they take seriously, okay, we this is a nation of immigrants. Therefore, we have to continue to be that. And I, in other words, I think the rhetoric is empty and shallow unless it's followed up by a, a kind of imperative for action in the present. And uh, just as those people who came in, let's say, 1900, or, um, who didn't know English, who uh, had, uh, you know, you know what is it the the refuse of your uh, refuse of your uh, teeming shores. Let's say they were, although they weren't. Uh, uh, but if the United States could accommodate them in the 1890s and 1900, then they can accommodate now. And that the children of today's immigrants will be just like me, OK, in as much as they're going to have access to American education, uh, no matter how poor their parents, they're going to um, speak English as well as anyone else. Um, and... Um, they're having a, um, an understanding of themselves as American and something else does not inhibit their participation in public life or their uh, patriotism or whatever word we want to use. And, um, you know, the children of those Italian immigrants, you know, from 1900, you know, went off to fight World War One and World War II. And uh, at, so why wouldn't the children of People wanting to come now from Nigeria or Pakistan or Bangladesh or uh, wherever. Why are they not gonna have that? Okay, and I think there, you know, I think race obviously is a really important factor uh in uh well, these people don't look like Americans, but it's also just historical short-sightedness because what is said about people from, you know, immigrants wanting, Mexicans wanting to come in now is what was said about Italians or Irish. Okay. You know, tweak the, uh, some of the, uh, adjectives, uh, just because, you know, we use different kind of language. It's the same idea. They'll never, they'll never fit in. They'll never give up their loyalty to their old place. They'll never ups, you know, define themselves as American. And, um, I mean, it's obviously nonsense and, uh, it was nonsense then it's nonsense now. And, um, you know, it was very interesting that when John Kennedy ran for president in 1960, um, he got Oscar Handlin. He was the great scholar of, mm-hmm. of immigration, the founder of our field, to write a book which came under? I gather Handlin wanted to have it co-authored, and Kennedy said, "I don't co-author anything." Uh, and um, so he wrote <laughs> this little book called "The Nation of Immigrants," which was his campaign, which was a campaign propaganda uh, for, um, and w- one of the planks of the Democratic Convention, nineteen sixty, was the re- uh, the. Um, uh, uh, revision of the immigration law, which out of which we got hart seller. And so that was a book written by an immigration historian who knew restriction very well. And it's not like he didn't know. And the book, in fact, talks about restriction and about anti-immigrant sentiment. But yet it was a political tool to elect this uh, grandson of Irish immigrants to the presidency, in part to change the immigration laws. So I would say the rhetoric is great if it leads to uh, more humane uh, policies in the present and future.
2: So we thought we'd end on a lighter note. Um, We historians spend a good deal of time on the road visiting our archives, and we wanted to ask you what your most memorable meal was while you were on a research trip and it could be a good memory it could be a bad memory just what was the mo what stands out most in your mind Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, you're second. a food historian as well, so <laughs> I know.
1: And, uh, so uh, just okay. So I uh, I was working in the um, archives at uh, in Nashville at uh, Fisk University, and um, there were the papers of a philanthropist I studied, Julius Rosenwald. And the Rosenwald Foundation papers were there and I wanted to have lunch and I went to some little cafe or a luncheonette on the street and I don't eat pork uh, and I don't eat, uh, actually I actually had the same experience in New, in New Orleans uh, at the Tulane archives. I wanted something to eat and I I was sort of really like kind of low carb, low fat, no pork. And in both places, the waitress said to me, honey, you've come to the wrong place. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh dear. Uh, so so that's your non-meal.
1: That's my non-meal, but I surely have, uh, oh, I mean, I've, I did. Yeah. I mean, did you, did you find something to eat there? I had you a couple of the coffee and a piece of toast. Uh, that was like pretty sad. And I was so hungry. And then I think I bought a chocolate bar, uh, which did not fit my nutritional, uh, Uh, Requirements. Um, Well, I've I've done some work in Italy, and um, I would say that I had a meal there in Rome, in um, it was in uh, Milan, uh, that I wanted to faint. It was so good. <laughs> and I, thought, I don't know how I'm going to leave this place. And it was like every course, uh, you know, it's the pasta, the fish, and the. Just
2: got better dog. and better.
1: <laughs> it got better in this pear. Now, here I really am recalling it. It was a kind of pear tart. And I thought, I don't, th- I don't think I want to leave this place. And I'm not sure I'm able. It's so good.
0: Man, Italy, I tell you what, I mean, I did not drink coffee until I was 30 years old, maybe. And um, so it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, a, a taste, you know, I had from, it wasn't a palate thing for me, but I remember have the first time I went to Rome and, like ordering a cappuccino and it was the most delicious thing i've ever you know i mean i have this remarkable taste memory for that specific encounter with that uh, we all know it because it's it's just it's just better there the you know food
2: life-changing that was great thank you again it's nice okay. to be able to sit down again with you so yes. we'll be in touch
0: and that's a wrap please join us again next time when we welcome aj cade grad student at um, George Washington University whose work on African American soldiers in Louisiana during the Civil War will be our focus. We will catch you then.